1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Beatrice Forbes-Mance. Beatrice is professor of history at Tufts University, where she researches, writes, and teaches about Middle Eastern and Central Asian history, with a particular focus on medieval history in the Timurid dynasty. And her book, Nomads in the Middle East, was published last year by Cambridge University Press. And that's the topic that we'll be discussing today. So thank you so much, Beatrice, for joining me. Thanks for having me. So to start off with, could you just sort of... Explain the geographical and temporal scope of your book. You know, what are the time periods um, that are under consideration here? And when you're talking about the Middle East, uh, as is in the title of your book, what geographic region um, are you focusing on?
2: The geographic region on which I focus stretches from Anatolia, what's now Turkey, east to through Afghanistan, and stretches south then to Egypt and, uh, and um, the Arabian Peninsula. So it includes the, most of the Arab countries, Iran, Afghanistan, Turkey, Egypt. I did not include North Africa, not because it's unimportant for nomads, but because it simply would have made the book too unwieldy. I couldn't manage that amount of narrative. I wanted a narrative history. And it's also a somewhat different kind of nomadism, somewhat different territory. So I decided it simply would have made the book totally unwieldy and I had a page limit.
1: Um, and so In terms of the time periods, you focus on sort of the Islamic world, really, um, or from the beginning of, um, you know, the formation of Islam up to the present day. Why that time period? You know, I I understand unwieldy page limit, um, but you could have started much earlier in history and talked about nomadism in, you know, antiquity um, in the Middle East and concluded maybe not up into the present day. So why that time range specifically?
2: That time period was set by Cambridge University Press. They asked me to write the book. They gave the title, Nomads in the Middle East. And it was, this is a, a, a series called Themes in Islamic History. So it starts with Islam by definition. That was good for me because I am used to the Islamic sources, primarily the Persian ones. This is my training. And when you go into the ancient world, it's, it's a different set of stories, a different set of questions, and I'm not an expert at all. Again, it would have been unwieldy. I did change the time somewhat. I asked them to go further towards the present because the 18th century, I think that was when they asked me to stop. That period is important for nomads still. So I said, let's go. The logical place to stop is mid-20th when they cease to be important politically. Mm
1: -hmm. And so why is this topic important? You know, why is it important to study the history of nomadism in the Middle East? What does focusing on nomads and nomadic people specifically tell us about Middle Eastern history more generally?
2: Well, the nomads that I am dealing with are pastoral nomads. And these are people who move in a, usually in a regular migration seasonally, uh, from one pasture to another in order to be able to support a larger number of animals. This is a market ad- adaptation. It it comes after agriculture, after the development of towns. So it is by definition something connected to settled society. And I'm putting this in the beginning because that is where its importance lies in Middle Eastern history. The Middle East is a very difficult terrain. It's quite arid, it's quite mountainous, It has a lot of steppe and desert and really quite a small percentage of the land is suitable for intensive agriculture. So without the nomads, without pastoral nomadism, it's very hard to imagine how, for instance, one could have provisioned cities. The Middle East in the medieval period had, was a relatively urban civilization, much more urban, for instance, than Europe. It had quite large cities. They had to be provisioned with animal products. And one could not have done that along with the agriculture without moving the flocks. The other thing for which pastoral nomads were absolutely crucial was trade. They provided some of the trade goods, um, leather and wool, most specifically, and livestock. They also provided the animals for transport. The camel is most particularly important there, both the the dromedary of the sort of desert lands and the the, uh, Bactrian camel, which is the more northern one. They were the ones prime they were the animals primarily used for trading caravans, and you needed large numbers more than you could have done close to cities. You also needed guides, and you also needed some protection, some way of keeping order in these very difficult steppe and borderlands. Now, the nomads were a danger, but they were also the only way to control because there was no way people without large numbers of horses and camels could deal with that territory or could keep order with it. So generally, the nomad tribes allied with whatever settled government did a lot of the controlling of difficult territories, which is most of the Middle East. The third thing for which nomads were crucial, was war. Once, this happens actually before Islam, once you develop saddles and stirrups and good bridles and also camel saddles, um, cavalry becomes central to warfare. Again, you need the horses. And we find settled civilizations not just to... Moving out into the steppe, moving out into nomad territory, they needed the nomads. They needed to include some. So you couldn't compete in war without without a lot of of, of horses and in, in some areas camels. Camels also for logistics. And the other thing was soldiers. N- people raised in a nomadic society tended to be. Excellent mounted archers, and mounted archery was the name of the game. So as I see it, there's really no way that the Middle East could have developed in a in the way it did as a rich, sophisticated, and powerful urban civilization without the presence of pastoral nomads. This, then, is really one of the central theses of my book, that nomads don't interrupt the history of the Middle East. They help to create it. Yes, there is friction. And yes, they do sometimes constitute a danger. But they are are absolutely necessary for the functioning of the civilization, of the economy and the culture in some ways. The other reason they are crucial in the history is their dynasties. Now, the Bedouin dynasties, founded by the camel nomads of the Western regions, tended to be relatively small. They just controlled the area of a, a major tribe, say. The ones most important for political events and the formation of great states were the nomads from the steppe, the Eurasian nomads raising primarily horses, sheep, goats, and Bactrian camels, the horse being the king of the animals there. They had developed an imperial tradition that starts well before Islam, actually before Christ, and which continues. So empires would form, they were enormous, they were rather loosely controlled. When they fell apart, then various subsections would migrate to, to the borders of settled lands, and many of them came to the Middle Eastern borders. And starting from the Seltricid invasion in the mid um, 11th century, the Seljukids the, the came as a small group of poor nomads. They conquered essentially the, the larger part of the Middle East and created a dynasty. gave a, took over power from the caliph, uh, though they kept the caliph. They were succeeded then eventually by the Mongols, enormously important in uh, Middle Eastern history. And um, from then on, really through the 19th century, most large states were either founded by nomads or dependent on largely nomad armies. So the political history of the Middle East becomes the history of nomad dynasties. And I think it should be said that these Nomads brought some state-building traditions with them. They were not unacquainted with agriculture. They were not unacquainted with the needs of cities. And they had ideas about how to rule.
1: That's really interesting. I mean, I think that just touches on so many things that we tend to assume are not the case um, for nomadic peoples and for the history of nomadism, where so much of the history of the Middle East is written you know, from this kind of Ibn Khaldunian perspective of nomadism as antithetical to civilization and to state building and government um, and culture and things like that. Uh, and again, it, we, and we also tend to forget about that very long history um of many of the empires of of the middle east especially in the medieval period as being founded by nomads um especially the steppe nomads originally um and the kind of that history um, of the role of nomads in state building and in the building of large empires is tends to get kind of Lost, um, or maybe not lost, but we we tend to forget, or we sort of don't believe um, that nomads can give rise to kind of world powers. Um, so I think it's fascinating in your book how you um, proved those assumptions to be untrue.
2: Well, I'm I'm not the only one. The field has been changing a lot in the last. 20 or 30 years. When I started, um, yes, the, it was a very negative view, as I said, of nomads interrupting. Nomads were thought to have to learn from the settled, which they did, but they did have their own traditions. And if you take someone like the Mongols, their army was not entirely nomadic when they came in. They had been dealing with the settled they knew what to do with the cities they knew they destroyed a lot of them they said they would if they didn't uh, if they didn't submit but they knew what they wanted they took the artisans they took levies of soldiers they took particularly cloth they were interested particularly in arms and cloth they they didn't destroy the the religious classes so they knew what they were doing. And you—you, you, my belief is you don't conquer a large territory by being stupid. So that's become increasingly recognized. I want to mention here, perhaps it's a little out of place because it's a different book, the, the one of the very major forces for this change was uh, Thomas Allison, a scholar actually at Trenton State University, who wrote on the Mongols and simply changed that field. He transformed it because he wrote on the assumption that these were intelligent people who knew what they were doing. He wrote a lot about trade consumption and so on. And, and also the the transmission of ideas, brilliant, brilliant scholar. He died recently.
1: Right, Um, And so on the topic of sources, um, you know, if you could maybe talk a bit about the primary sources that you use, you touched on this a little bit already about Islamic and specifically Persian um, sources on nomads, Um, but there's this kind of trope um, in the study of nomadic peoples that it's difficult or unusually difficult um, to study nomadic people, specifically because of this idea that they, they themselves leave behind sort of a lack of Uh, written records or of material evidence, and that that's kind of just something that you have to contend with um, when trying to study nomads and reconstruct the history of nomads. So how did you deal with that challenge? Or was that a challenge in your case? And what um, documentary or archaeological evidence did you rely on?
2: I relied almost entirely on written sources for the medieval period. uh, There's very little archeological, sort of outside of, well, art historical, you have, of course, you have the buildings, but there's not a great deal of, of good, of archeological work done, certainly on nomads. Some in recent years, but not a great deal. So, I have relied largely on essentially almost entirely on um, on written sources. These sources, when you're in the pre-modern Middle East and outside the modern, the Ottoman Empire, are almost exclusively narrative and they are, they do not permit you to learn as much as you would like about any subject whatsoever, particularly anything political, social or economic, that is below the very top. So you just have to do the best you can by taking all the bits of information. Yes, these are written by settled people, but they are written by people in the service of nomad dynasties. When you get to the Mongol period, you get a massive improvement. The Seljukids are very, very hard to study from any sort of nomad standpoint, although there are a few. Been, there's been some real advance there recently. There are a few documents, but the sources are not very good. When you get to the Mongols, you get sources like Giovanni um, and Rashida Deen, who really wanted to learn about about what the Mongols were and about what the Mongols had done before they conquered. You also get a great deal of acculturation on both sides, not just at the court but also the soldiers fought together. So people at all levels or at least all upper levels were interacting, Mongols and and persians and these these scholars knew something about about the mongols and about nomads and they were interested so there you get a a richer base but in general yes it's a struggle and you simply have to spread your net as widely as you can and find a way to put all the little bits of information together
1: And how did you deal with uh, bias in those historical sources? You know, I think this is another kind of trope um, that scholars um, have to deal with, uh, that this idea that sources about nomads are written primarily from an outside perspective and therefore are inflected with. Often negative um, perceptions about the nomadic peoples that they're writing about. Did you do you think that that's the case with your sources? And if so, you know how did you manage that?
2: My own period, the one for which I use the primary sources, is the period of the Mongols and the Timurids. So it's the thirteenth um, through fifteenth centuries. Otherwise, I was ba- I based my book on largely on secondary sources or sometimes primary sources in translation if i was to finish that book there was no other way i could do it the there's a there's a duality a kind of um, what is the word i want um uh there is a word i'm i'm blanking on it but, but there's a, a there's both a negative and a positive view of nomads. You see this, for instance, in the great um, Arab essayist, Ajahis, who writes, who writes some of the early things which are useful for nomads. Nomads are praised for their, sometimes for their simplicity, for their military prowess, um, for their directness. They are seen as violent and uncouth by the Persians. Now, the, the, the nomads uh, tended to look down on the settled. Likewise, they're they're soft, they're lousy soldiers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Both sides tend to exaggerate the difference. This has been talked about for Bedouin for the Bedouin period. So it's very interesting recent work on Bedouin poetry and and, uh, Bedouin history, the Bedouin being the the camel nomads, primarily. Um, So it's in the interest of both the ruling stratum of people of nomad background, often usually Persian, or I mean, uh, Turkic, Mongolian speaking, though bilingual, most of them, and um, and the, the scribes, the historians who are serving them. That's for some reason, that difference is exaggerated. So, yes, there is a bias, but in a way, it's almost as much a bias to typecast as it is positive, negative. It depends on the historian. So one of the things, and again, that has gotten attention recently, one of the things you have to watch out about is not letting the sources make you think that there is a real dichotomy there.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Um, And so you've touched on aspects of this already, but I was wondering if you could just say a bit more about... um, sort of the one of your, I think, key arguments, which is about the power that was wielded by nomadic peoples and the extent of that power um, throughout history, which is, you know, you've touched on aspects of economic and military and political power that nomadic peoples possessed. Um, and so, and in your book, you're kind of charting the history of that power from the rise of Islam into the present day. And one of the points that you make is that nomadic peoples actually possessed a great deal of power um, really up until the 19th, 20th centuries. So can you talk a bit more about that? You know, how were nomadic peoples, maybe if you, if there are particularly um, relevant examples that you can mention of how nomadic peoples were able to acquire and hold some of that power in earlier periods? And then why did nomads undergo a loss of that power in the modern era?
2: In the medieval period, I would say that there are several different ways in which they um, gain power. One was contested borderlands. You find this is particularly true in the Western part of the Middle East. You find where there are sort of nomadic areas with a major power, two two or three major powers surrounding them they are able to play off those powers and to make a space for themselves you see this for instance actually before Islam in the when the Romans were facing off against the sasanians and the the, the Arab tribes in the middle gained considerable power you see it again then later when you have the uh, the the, under the Abbasids, with the Fatimids in Egypt facing off against the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad, and the the nomads of the Syrian desert gain power at that point because they because they're in a borderland, they are important allies for both sides. Then later, again, you've got the Ottoman Empire and the Safavid, the Ottomans in in Anatolia and the Arab lands, the Safavid dynasty in Iran, contesting a very long border, stretching from the Caucasus down to the Gulf. And again, in there, along that border, that's where you get the Kurds, who are at least semi-nomads, and various other nomad tribes holding considerable powers, because they are um, they can play off play off powers they're being courted by both sides. Also when there's a battle novads are crucial for logistics. We've seen in Crimea they in the Ukrainian war now logistics are absolutely central. So that is one thing um, the other, is that the nomads from the steppe, um, those who were most successful, first of all, as I said before, they had statescraft. They also used mixed armies. And that's one point I make in my book that the mixed army is much the most powerful army. They were not entirely nomad armies. They were not tribally organized. But if you you can use nomads in a non-tribally organized army, along with settled soldiers, you can field an, an extraordinarily effective army for that territory, because you can get into the difficult terrain, but you can also, the settled people need less pasture, and they're good at other kinds of warfare, siege warfare, for instance. So that was one answer. And then the other answer um, is that they were indispensable. As I said earlier, that the, the, you couldn't let go of nomads because you needed them. They, you couldn't, you couldn't do, you couldn't arrange the pilgrimage, which was a major source of, you know, it was a sign that you were in control, right? was to control the pilgrimage. There's a a very good book on that. And if I remember properly, you needed about 40,000 camels. But that's a lot of camels. And you needed Bedouin guides because they knew where the water was. And you needed to keep on good terms with them or they would attack you. So as I see it, it's a combination of things. One that in fact nomads First of all, they could do the borders. Secondly, they could field really big mixed armies that they could control. And thirdly, they were they were indispensable. And those three things together made them powerful. So if you want to go on to why they lost power, if that's the next question. Um, What happens is modernity and the the good old industrial revolution is not, I think, a matter of firepower so much as transport and what government expected. When you get into the 19th century, particularly the Ottomans were looking west, they began to consider government a rather different business to want to control much more completely in the pre-modern world government was never a matter of the monopoly of force that's modern the plurality of force is a better way of putting it government was a great deal less powerful and it was a balancing act nomads were part of that balance so when you get into the 19th century, and the Ottomans, although in, you know, at, a, at a disadvantage in relation to the West, nonetheless began to work to control their, their population more directly, not through local rulers, but directly. This then means they tried to undercut tribal power. Citizenship comes to mean something different and, as I said, something much more direct. Now, what I think was absolutely crucial was certain aspects of modern technology, most importantly, in my mind, at the beginning at least, in transportation. The steamship. Is not so bad because the nomads can still control the sides of the rivers, and they can levy tolls. The railroads were more threatening, and it's I think not by chance that the Hijaz Railway, which was the early one going, you know, from down through to the holy cities in the Hejaz and Saudi in Arabia, that that was attacked by nomads routinely, because that will transport goods. Now, I think then what happens that is really the death knell to nomadism comes with World War I. Up through the 19th century, things were changing a great deal. Governments were out to, to get fuller control, to suppress the tribes. But nomads were still very powerful in and around World War I. They have a resurgence, in fact. But what happened about this time was first of all, the discovery of a a, good deal of oil and the faster and fuller development of wheeled transport. That is to say, not railroads, but trucks and eventually tanks and more. Once you have trucks, you can get out into the desert more easily, and you can transport goods more effectively. This then takes the place of the camel, and the camel market began to decline disastrously. It's also possible then, with this, to begin to control your borders more fully. This has gone along with a new idea of what a border is, a more European, your modern one that is a definite border. But you can get into much more difficult terrain with trucks than you can on foot, basically, which was the alternative. So there again, you cut into the market for both um, camels and horses and mules, all of which were nomad products. The second um, major thing I see at this point in terms of technology is a um, is one it is it, a military one, and that's the machine gun. With a machine gun you can mow down a cavalry charge with no trouble. But that killed cavalry both in in Europe, they where the World War started with cavalry and ended in trenches. And in the Middle East likewise ex, for any major war it finished cavalry. Now what that means again is that the market for horses radically declines. And also for nomad soldiers for tribal levies because um, if you don't have cavalry there, no better than other soldiers. And it's actually easier to train people with guns. So I would say that up to World War One, firearms had not, had, had affected certain battles, but had not been as crucial because until you could load them from horseback, they were, they slowed a cavalry down And once you could load them from horseback around mid-19th century, um, the nomads could get hold of them, could use them just as well. But with the machine gun, that changes. The new weapons were simply changed warfare in a way that made nomads much less important, much less useful, and less powerful on their own. So what happens then is, first of all, the nomads have lost a good part of their market, power. And secondly, they're no longer indispensable. You could form a powerful state without using nomads. You didn't need them for your armies. You didn't need them to control your borders. All you need nomads for now is the is the animal products. And there are still nomads in the Middle East. They tend to migrate by truck now. They still use different pastures, but they don't have the political or economic power that they once had.
1: And this is maybe a bleak question, but what is your opinion on the future of pastoralism in the Middle East? You know, I, I think you say at the end of your book that um in the modern era nomads seem to have lost whatever power they once held and that that has happened for the last time that they will not be able to regain any of the power that they once held and I agree with that um but what about the future of pastoralism in general I think you know many scholars are of the opinion that pastoralism worldwide, but especially in the Middle East um, and with the effects of climate change in the Middle East, that pastoralism is sort of in its death throes. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that there's a future potential for a a continuation of a pastoralist lifestyle, even if it's not pastoralist power um, in our contemporary world?
2: Um, I'm a historian, so I'm not trained to look at the future, but I will say that it's pastoralism pastoralism appears still to be useful because it does provide animal products from sheep and goats primarily, camels to some extent, horses now probably less. that do provision the cities. And unless the Middle East wants to import such products from outside, they're going to be low on them because, as I said, the territory for intensive agriculture is small. And nomads can make, nomadism can make use of marginal lands. Now, they may end up, it may end up being something like what we call transhumans, such as they practice in Switzerland, where you have one house in the lowlands and one house in the uplands. But if you want to raise livestock in the Middle East, I think you're going to have to move them from one pasture to another. And um, people who practice nomadic lifestyles seem to like them. So it's different now. It's closer to the settled. They don't spend as much time on migration. They buy feed. So it's it's a different kind of nomadism, but it still uses different pastures, summer and winter.
1: Mm. Okay. Um, And there's just a final question as we're coming up on the end of our time. Um, You know, your book packs a lot of history um, into a relatively short number of pages. You know, you cover... 1400 years of of the history of nomadic peoples in the Middle East, and it's a really rich and layered history. Uh, But as you've acknowledged, you know, you can't write everything. Um, So what do you think still remains to be written or still remains to be researched around this topic? What are the gaps that could be filled? By future scholarship. Um, and for people who are interested in learning more about this topic, maybe things that weren't, you know, weren't able to be covered by you in your book. What are some other um, uh, sources out there that you would recommend to listeners?
2: In terms of future research, I would say gap is not the word. Our knowledge is, is like the tip of an archipelago. You know, it's an archipelago of our islands. There's endless. It's a, we know a very small amount of the whole. Not all of it is possible to research. Our sources won't allow us. But there are we, almost every period of, um, especially if the pre-modern Middle East needs more research, both on nomads and on everything else. But I think particularly on nomads now that the Attitude towards them has changed on the part of so many, uh, so many historians, and um, I had a page limit, and I have a knowledge limit, so there was only so much I could do. But there's, a there's, a, you could do more, I think, on the cultural than I did. That would be nice to develop more. On the economic, I felt I, I think that a great deal more work could done on, on trade and the non-war activities of nomads. That's better done in the, Medi- in the ancient period, I think, because that's the kind of sources they have. But I think we could do more on that. Uh, so those would be two things I think it would be nice to have more on, but really pretty well every period there are sources that have not been fully plumbed. And not from the fold fold of historians, it's just that we're thin on the ground. And so if you want books, um, there's essentially no other history that covers the whole period and the whole place and focuses on nomads, which is one reason I was happy to undertake the book because it's fun to write a first book. Um, There is one book out there That covers a longer period of time, but more on nomads, but um, focuses on Iran, and that's Daniel Potts, uh, Nomadism in Iran um, from Antiquity to the Modern Era, which is Oxford, 2014. Um, A couple of good, uh, I'll, I'll just give one good introduction to nomadism primarily in the Middle East, but also elsewhere. That's Thomas Barfield, The Nomadic Alternative. I think uh, Prentice Hall, 1993, which is a very accessible book. And I think gives a very good, vivid um, picture. I would say um, you told me three, and that's difficult. One anthropological uh, book I like a lot and found very useful, also accessible, is Lois Beck, um, The Qashqai of Iran. She's written also a book called Nomad, which is likewise an excellent book. So that's um, a very small selection, but you told me three, so that's what (laughs) I give you.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a vast literature on this topic. um, But thank you for sharing your highlights. Um, And thank you so much for joining me and sharing your research with us. As you said, there is no other book that covers the history of nomadism in the Middle East in this Long durée and charts that history from the rise of Islam to the present. Um, so, thank you for writing that book. I found it really, uh, really fascinating to read and very valuable for my own research. So, thank you for coming on and talking to me about it.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me. And I should say also in closing that I should thank the people who vetted the chapters for me because I was writing well, well beyond my comfort zone and i did this with the help of many other scholars
1: yes as we all do everything